This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Have you heard of the Dicequith family? The Dicequiths? Why, yes, of course. Hasn't everyone? Then you've heard of Highhurst Castle? Of course. You're aware, then, of their position, their vast wealth and influence? Yes, yes. What's it got to do with me? You're a Dicequith. What? You're a Dicequith. No. Oh, the Dicequith blood is flowing through you. Me? A Dicequith? A genuine bona fide Dicequith. Rubbish. Of course, of course you don't believe me, do you? You must be mad. Very well, then. If your mother was not a Dicequith, what was her maiden name? She always insisted that the only name that mattered was my father's. Your mother lived like a princess in every way, the daughter of Lord Maximilian. Till she met your father one fateful day, she knew it was love, and yet the family declared she'd been led astray by a climbing conniving Castilian. Oh, let him go, or else you'll know, and life you will live to regret. This was no idle threat. You're a dice with you're a perfectly breedable dice with. And a dice with does her duty, don't forget. There was nothing your mother could say. She eloped with your father the very next day. So she was disinherited? In a word, yes. Despicable, the lot of them. How awful. Your mother made me promise I'd never tell. But now she is no longer living. She wanted to spare you her pride. But I think you deserve to know Take this knowledge and use it well The family may yet be forgiving This will guarantee you the right to be On the family tree As it seems to be Indisputably Sudden a time squeak. Yes, and it's time that everybody knew it. Are you are the son of the daughter, of the grandson, of the nephew, of the second Earl of Highhurst Newton? I 
and the son of the daughter of the, the grandson of sorry the nephew of the second Earl of Highhurst. The thought occurred: Why should I believe a woman who might very well be insane? And yet. There seemed to be an air of authenticity to this document. I'm a dice. You're a dice. It would seem I'm a dice. You're a dice with Montague. I picture you at high heart. Yesterday I was Monty Navarro. You could be an Altamorro. And my Hurst could be my Hurst. I'm a dice with. You're a dice with. A, a dice with. A dice with. A dice. Kia ora e te whanau, Welcome backstage once again, I'm Mel, he's Mike and we're just a couple of theatre nerds based in Hamilton, New Zealand and we like to talk all about theatre as well as to other people who also like doing, making, watching theatre of all shapes and sizes You bet, our musical of the week this week is A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder So you can just sit back with your sandwich if that's what you've got and relax whenever you're listening to this with whatever you've got <laughs> well you, yeah if you're listening to it on the radio it's five o'clock <laughs> but we've got you covered over the next hour and if you're gagging for more of us after this you can listen to all of our past episodes online through your favorite podcast streaming platforms if you haven't caught up yet last week was a whole lot of angels in america which actually there is a whole lot of and musical of the week was dream girls what a musical it is yeah great music mm. really enjoyed mm. that one me too I'd love to see one of the local societies take that on. We did talk about it very briefly last week, and you know, you very correctly brought up the fact that it is a show about women of colour in the music business at that time, yeah. and casting might be a bit of an issue. So that's probably something we can have more of a discussion about, I think, because there are those hurdles to overcome sometimes when mm. you're working within a limited kind of gene pool and you're, you've only got the local talent, but... Trying to um, face up to those things and find ways to get really workable solutions within those frameworks is something I think um, perhaps uh, quite a few organisations grapple with from time to time. Yeah, and I mean, it's not specific to any one location. I think you probably have the same trouble in Dunedin that you might have in Hamilton, you know, when it comes to what I call authentically casting a show like that. Mm. Um, you probably, the closest in New Zealand you're going to get to authentically casting a show like Dream Girls is you will probably find a bunch of Māori or Pacifica or other ethnicities to fill your cast with, but you probably aren't going to find a whole cast of African-American women because we just don't have the population have of those people in yeah. New Zealand. But you can still be respectful and try your hardest in that respect you know the same applies to doing things like miss saigon uh, you know yeah. a large number of the cast and that should actually be people of a- asian origin that's right however there are also occasions when you are looking at casting a show when race or ethnicity doesn't need to be an issue and you should be sometimes uh, broadening your scope when you're looking at casting to say well that person could do that role it doesn't really matter what ethnicity they have yeah and sometimes the gender doesn't matter either you yeah. could be very fluid on how you approach that thing yeah but we're talking now about the need to be true to what the intent of the show is and, and what it, what it's portraying that's what i was just going to say sort of it depends on the show and the role as to whether or not you can move away from what was intended mm. you know i really want to do one day a gender bent version of rent where all the males are played by females and all the females are played by males and just make it this whole non-gender thing and whilst 
that doesn't remain true to the in- intent of the script, I'm barely certain that Jonathan Larson, the writer of the show, would be all about it because he was such a fierce advocate for gender diversity and queer rights and that's part of why he wrote Rent and he was queer himself and I just think he would be all about a gender-bend version of Rent. So it sort of depends on the show and the role and the writer and all of that. Would you contact the writer or or go through the agent of the writer and say, look, this is what we're intending to do with this piece of work? What uh, reaction do you have? What what recommendations could you give us about how we might approach this? Yeah, I think you have to if you're going to do something like that. In this case, Jonathan Larson is no longer with this earth, but you would probably contact his estate or the agent. agent Well, if you're licensing rent, you would contact the license holders and get them to suss it out for you. Yeah, I'm sure that they have provision for dealing with those sort of queries yeah, they will. within their frameworks. Anyway. Yeah, they will. But it would be interesting to see, uh, you know, different takes on on tons of shows that that don't necessarily have a prerequisite for specific ethnicities. Yeah, well, and 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 disabilities, mm-hmm. same sort of thing. Something that I think about quite often, obviously, because I'm a performer, director, stage manager, and um, with a disability. If I just turned up to audition for, uh, I don't know, bloody... What's coming up? I can't even think of a show. If I turned up to audition for... I was going to say fame, but fame is one for 16-year-olds and also it's a dancing show. Yeah. But most community space directors don't have the skills or expertise to like make that environment accessible. And that's not their fault. That's not something they've done wrong. It's just maybe a lack of training and a lack of social culture. Yeah, it could be a lot of that, actually. Uh, But you had the experience recently of appearing in 12 Angry Men, Mm. where you were one of the jurors. That's right. The the juror could well be somebody who has mobility issues, or it could even be somebody who uh, is blind. Because this is life, you know. This, that's right. That's how people are. It represents a range of. And yeah, it, yeah. It made no difference at all to the way you were able to perform that character. No, uh, the fact that uh, that you you use crutches, so it was nothing detrimental to the character, nothing detrimental to the story. No, and in fact, I think added another element of uh, more realism to that kind of scenario. You know, I'm really I mean? glad to hear you say that. Um, and kudos to Tracy, Tracy Barlow, who you're a big fan of, who directed Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. Um, and she, it was just never an issue for her. She went, yeah, you're good, cool, great, you can be in my play. Well, she looked at the play and said, why can't, this is going to be 12 people. Yeah, it's not 12 people dancing around the stage doing cartwheels. And it wasn't all, um, you know, 12 men specifically either. It was just 12 people. But you don't change the title of the show, but um, she took a view that she wanted 12 good actors. 12 jurors, yeah. And there they were. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and I mean, and but I have also, on the flip side of that, been told you can't be in this play because you're on crutches and we can't see a way forward that incorporates you into our physical way of working. Essentially were the words that got said to me. Okay. Um, this was a long time ago, though. But... Which now I am now. So it wasn't a dancing role? (laughs) No, it was just a play. It was just a play. Uh, I was auditioning for the role of someone's sister. And I thought the audition went really well. And yeah, then the team came back to me, and, and that's what they said. They were like, "Ah, oh, the crutches, no go, no it deal." Shows a bit of a, a lack of willingness to think a little bit beyond what's obvious. I mean, and sometimes it is hard, you know. Like I've worked often with a guy, Nick Borcher, who has dyspraxia, and so he's got things that we work harder on for him that we don't maybe with other actors 
but we do that because Nick's good and he's nice to work with and we want the space to be inclusive for everybody and anybody. But you do that in a way that makes the performer feel included, um, allows them to use the, um, the skill set that they've got in the best way possible. It doesn't have to be something you telegraph or signal to an audience. They don't even need to be aware of any of the background story in any of this. You're just presenting somebody on stage doing a thing. Who is living a life and their yeah. issues, their issues. And that's actually, a, I saw, I rave on about this show all the time, War Horse. Um, yeah. There was a girl, there's a little girl and her name's Emily and she finds the horses in the second act. And the person who played this um, little girl and the production I saw had one arm. She had um, an amputated arm, probably. I don't know. That's just her life story, but you don't... It was never acknowledged. It was never addressed. It was just this actor with one arm doing all the things that the character would do, and it was never addressed. Did it, the, it didn't need to be. And it made no difference to the performance whatsoever. Exactly. She was an ex. She was excellent, and that's a classic, beautiful example of how to incorporate a disabled actor into your work. I think it's fantastic to give opportunities to people to just be who they are. Totally. Um, and get past the idea that they've been, may have been subconsciously believing for a long time that they don't have a part to play in normal life. Yeah. Using quotation marks. Or that they may not get a role because of their disability. They need to be shown and told that there's an opportunity for them to do the very best they can if, they, if they're able to do the role in they could well be the best person for that role. That's right. Well, and this leads me to an, sort of another part of the discussion is, like, I'm not suggesting we just give disabled actors roles because they're disabled actors. There still has to be an element of they've got to be right for the role yeah. and not even right the best out of everyone who auditions. Correct. You know, you still have to be able to do the job get the thing done, learn the lines, sing the songs, etc. This, this is material we have talked about before, but I think it's 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 a subject you can come back to um, mm. fairly frequently because over time things change with regard to all that too. And sometimes you get to see something involving somebody who's, who's um, working with a disability or is not the obvious choice for a role, and you see them do a fantastic job. And mm. think, actually, this raises that issue again and is a great example of why opportunities work for people they they and uh, give individuals an opportunity to do more than what they think they can do yeah and to uh, prove to others around them too that they that they've got skills and and imagination and creativity that is not obvious well exactly and it also is a kudos to a creative team who can make allowances and make room to make this person feel like they're not the disabled guy on stage yeah or the disabled woman or the you know the kid in the wheelchair you know you're more than that and it takes a special team to be able to bring that out you know i can remember not that long ago you know with within my sort of acting lifetime that if you saw a character in a play or in any kind of production or, or even sometimes on film who may have been using a wheelchair for example there would always need to be some kind of backstory or some reason to justify the fact that that, that, You'd have to that know character why. was in a wheelchair. Yeah. Nowadays, you you don't give it another thought. Somebody comes on stage in a wheelchair, um, it might cross your mind as an audience member. Oh, I wonder, wonder why. Wonder why. Yeah. But if it's not integral to the story, actually, that becomes totally irrelevant. And as an as audiences, we do now just pass it by. Yeah. We, well, most of us do. 
You're mentioning the, um, the little girl on a war horse with the one arm. I yeah. saw some, uh, can't remember the TV series. It was something we were watching on Netflix a few months ago, actually. And one of the key actresses in, in, the, in the story that involved multiple characters all living their lives and intersecting was a woman who had uh, um, an amputation just below the elbow on her right arm. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't even aware of it for the first episode that I yeah, saw, right. the, saw the production. And then she was doing something in one of the subsequent episodes. I thought, oh, she's only got one arm. But it, was, it wasn't actually integral to the, in, to the story. It was just that actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought... I love that. How cool is that? Because she was minding a baby. She was doing all kinds of stuff like that. And a damn fine actress. It's a good representation of humanity, I find. Yeah. It's an interesting topic because there are usually just two camps. The first being, it's called acting. I should be able to act the part of a disabled character or a gay character or any kind of other character because it's called acting. Or the second camp, only disabled actors should play disabled roles and gay actors should play gay roles and females should play female roles, etc., etc. And to be honest, like I said, as a disabled actor, director and stage manager, I fall into both camps simultaneously and... Um, find it hard to pick a side. It is a really difficult... Uh, well, you can't pick sides in that. It's a difficult thing to be absolute about. Mm, uh, yeah, I don't think you can Yeah, be. you talk about, in particular, uh, straight people playing gay roles. Gay people have been playing straight roles for years. Totally. So, you know, quid pro quo. Uh, I don't see any reason why a straight actor can't play a gay role, but if you happen to cast somebody who is gay in a gay role, great. Yeah, yeah. You know, win-win. Yeah. But yeah, actors are actors. They are used to make believe. They used to um, yeah, yeah. You know, tell which the story I knew you would say. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I'm like you. I kind of sit on the fence on that a little Me bit too. Uh, and a foot in both camps because uh, I think there are sometimes when um, if it just happens that the person you've chosen ticks all of those boxes and this extra box as well because bingo, they are disabled. Yeah. Um, then that's a happy coincidence more than anything. I mean, like I said, I sit in both camps. I. I mean, we're going to play a clip for you in a little while from the guy, Mickey Rowe, who played... He was the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone from The Curious Incident of the Dog of the Nighttime. And he talks a bit about how important it is to him that he is an autistic actor representing an autistic character for autistic audiences. And I get the the, the representation thing. Mm. I get... You know, like, blackface used to be a thing. Yeah. You know, somebody white used to be able to pretend to be somebody black. And I think you could almost compare the two. Although, when you mention blackface, um, in my mind, the first thing I think of is a black and white minstrel show kind of approach, a kind of exaggerated caricature of what blackface is. Yeah, 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 and right. And I, I know now that people refer to that when they think, talk about somebody being uh, made, you know, made up to look black yeah, well, in, a, in a genuine way. Yeah, it's um, like... The old performances of Othello, you know, where back well, in the day... Lawrence Olivier made a great Othello. Yeah. But he had to be black to do it. I mean, yeah. Othello was a black character. Exactly. I was involved in a production of Othello at Court Theatre in Christchurch in um, 1970 Mumble, um, <laughs> where the guy playing Othello there did an absolutely amazing job. Um, he was Caucasian, but um, his makeup was incredibly effective. And um, all the wonderful shades of brown and black that yeah. uh, looked really authentic. And he did a, a bang-up job. He was probably the best Othello in Christchurch at the time. Mm. He just happened to have white skin. Mm. It's tricky, eh? Yeah. That's, I find that 
I mean, but it was a different time then as well. Um, yeah. That would never fly now, no, and, and, and no and one I, would ever do it. I think if you were <laughs> if you were thinking about doing Othello, you would really, <laughs> really be on thin ice if you thought you could do that. You definitely can't. It's 2021, guys. <laughs> you can't do that. But it's not. Uh, we sort of digress a little bit on the subject of you know blackface. I mean, but should disabled? We'd love to know. Actually, leave us a comment. What do you guys think? Should disabled actors be playing disabled characters should gay characters be played by gay actors i don't know all right we'll leave it up in the air but i would like to go with this clip that we've got of the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime mickey rowe was a young man who was given the opportunity to play christopher boone in that and for him this was a life-changing moment i remember we played this clip uh once before when we were talking about that production Mm. but i was so moved actually by what he had to say about what it meant to him as an autistic person to have an opportunity to act on stage and to do a role that he so closely identified with that meant the world and you can hear that in everything he has to say i knew that the train station was somewhere near and if something is near- i am an actor and i have autism it's really hard for people with any disability to get a large role in a professional theater But for the first time in my life, I'm getting to star in a major professional production. Use those words, Christopher! You said it on September 12th last year at first break. My name is Mickey Rowe, and I am playing Christopher Boone in The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. The Curious Incident of the Dog of the Nighttime is about a boy who has autism and his adventure that flips his world upside down. I am the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, and I am surprisingly one of the first autistic actors to play any autistic character anywhere. I've had to be an actor my whole life to pass as neurotypical. So being an actor comes so naturally to me. I use scripting in my daily life. For example, if I went to a coffee shop, I might say to the barista, hi, can I please have a medium drip coffee? How's your day going today? Has it been busy today? And then regardless of what they say, it's been busy or slow, I can then say, oh, would you like it better when it's busy or when it's slow? So that way I can kind of script my life so I don't have to deal with social interactions. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. No! In rehearsal is my happy spot because I have the lines. I'm playing a character. Everyone else is playing a role, be it another character in the play or director. Great, we have to stop there and take five, you guys. During five-minute breaks or ten-minute breaks or lunch breaks, is when you feel less comfortable. You don't have a specific role during that time, which makes it confusing for someone on the spectrum. On stage, there's often bright light shining on you and loud noises that come out of nowhere as sound cues. But you've rehearsed all these things in advance and you know where each sound cue is happening because it happens in the exact same place every night. So. It almost feels like you're in control of those things, and because you know what to expect, you're in on the magic. 
and would have to talk to other people though from mission control but we would do that through a radio link up and a tv monitor so it wouldn't be like talking it's so rare for any actor with any disability to get to play a leading role in any production let alone a professional traveling production i get to show people that people with disabilities we get the job done For me, that's what it's really all about. It's not so much about giving all actors the opportunity to play all roles, because there are actually some roles that um, you are never going to be able to play. You know, Mike, you are never, I'm sorry to say, you are never going to be able to play Christine in Phantom. What, I'm too old? You are, yes, you're too old. <laughs> and that's too, true. too broad. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to play Jean Valjean. Uh, and as much as we may not like it, it's just the way it is. Yeah. There are just some roles we're never going to play. Unless somebody does a really outrageous uh, gender bender version of Lamers, and then we'll be auditioning for sure. <laughs> then my fingers are crossed. <laughs> but, you know, we're exaggerating. But to be fair, in a community setting, um, it's, it, as we said at the outset, you know, sometimes it's really not easy to be able to enforce that mm. and to be 100% on the money when it comes to diversity. And you're often sort of bound up by the people who come out to audition them because they just happen to be the people who do turn up. You might tap a few people on the shoulder and say, come audition, mm. because you think they could possibly be part of it. But if they're the only ones who are there and you still need to get the production on, you've got to be able to find a way to make it work. And occasionally it might be worth going out, especially to find somebody and say, come and be in the show and do this part. Yeah. That also That's problematic it gets on into its problematic yeah, in terms of being open and, and uh, transparent with regard to the auditioning process. But, uh, so I feel for all of that. Yeah, in yep, a professional same. environment, there's no excuse, none whatsoever. That's a, that's also a good point. Another great point, and it sort of goes back to what we were talking about before about doing those shows or being too shy or scared of doing those shows that are about a marginalised community, whatever that is. Let's just do the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime with an or art, autistic actor, or let's put on the whiz or hairspray which granted did get done or dream girls you know let's put on one of those shows about marginalized communities and encourage the marginalized communities of our community into so, the yeah. theater so so that they go does that make sense so that you know the maori community go oh they're doing moana cool i'm brown as like i'm gonna go audition for moana but yeah. when we keep doing mama mia oh mama mia might not be a good example actually o oklahoma or something yeah like when, you, that. when we keep doing oklahoma or you know just these really white musicals filled with white people and let's try harder I think you've struck a nerve there with that because I think if if we said next year we're going to do Dream Girls and you actually went out of your way to publicise it you and, made and an effort. reach out to as many people as you can to say this is going to be a big challenge for us but we want to do Dream Girls it involves these characters we need as close as we can Are get to African American uh, performers to take on those roles. Help us find them. Because those performers are out there. Yeah, We're just not looking hard enough to... Yeah. And I say we, Mike and I specifically, but we being the arts community in Hamilton. It's, I, I think I'm specifically referring to the musical theatre because musicals are typically just really white. And it would be cool to get some diversity in that sphere. I reckon. I'm down with that. Yeah? You're down with it? Yep. Excellent. And we're not going to build Rome in a day. We haven't just solved all of the arts industry issues with accessibility, but we are talking about it. And I think having those discussions is, uh, is healthy and it's something we've got to keep doing.
and encouraging oh, others to keep talking about it. Absolutely. Which is a bloody good uh, starting point for, you know, building a healthier environment for everybody, I think, if you ask me. Yep, I agree. Directors, I encourage you to not be scared or intimidated by the possibility of working with a disabled actor, uh, but instead see it as an opportunity for you and your entire team to broaden the scope of the kind of theatre you're making. And like I said, it is 2021. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Denying his humble start, but it fills up this poor old heart when I see how well he's done. Look at him, all the loyalty he has shown, how my fondness for him has grown. Till he's almost like a son Some might have thought him unsuitable How quickly he's earned my respect Who would think That the dice with me cast aside Could become such a source of pride He's the last one you'd expect believed that Monte Navarro ever would come so far, so fast. Never have seen a man so keen to overcome his past. Now he can live in princely fashion as the dice good name requires. He can pursue with all his passion everything he desires. I must go. Will I see you again? Of course. Some might have thought him unsuitable. They were, of course, incorrect. I always believed in Monte Navarro, even though in Respect. Who would have guessed whose bell I'd ring this very afternoon? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Only just unpacked my protracted honeymoon. He's the last one you'd expect. Miss Dicewith, pardon me, Mr. Navarro is here to see you. Like a song. Oh, some, some 
might have thought him unsuitable. But if they took a pause to reflect, they would seize on his matchless abilities. He's the best of the breed of yeast that no one you'd expect. Only two people that's still alive who stand between the earldom and me. Only two who survive who are still above me. On the dice with family tree is the next one. My employer asked with dice with, but he's treated me so well. How I'm grateful to remove him after all his kindness. Oh, what hell! But remember, he was hateful. Asked with dice with, was the cause of mother's grief. He denied her, vilified her, took away her birthright like a thief. On the other hand, has he not been rather decent, making me successor? Must admit, I hate to do it. I've grown rather fond of him. And pardon me, Mr. Navarro. It is my sad duty to report that Lord Asquith Dicewith has gone to his great reward. Oh no! What's happened? Heart attack. At least he did not suffer, sir. Only one person left still alive who stands between the earldom and me. Dicewith brings to seven the number of heirs to the Dicewith fortune who have died since last year. Hmm, how very lucky for Monty Navarro. How astounding. How peculiar. It's astounding. And peculiar. Yes, how Our musical of the week this week is A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. I'm Mike Williams, backstage here with Mel Martin this week once again. And while we have a hot minute, a hot minute, <laughs> I would like to once again acknowledge our friends at Free FM and Creative Waikato who endlessly support not only us and our podcast but other artists and arts projects all around the region. They are just such giving people. Stand-up fellows. They are straight-up guys. Without any more ado, it's now the time we've all been waiting for. Gentleman's Guide is a Broadway, but not a West End musical, I've discovered. Please tell us all about it. Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder is a musical comedy with the book and lyrics by Robert L. Friedman and the music and lyrics uh, contributed extra to the lyrics by Stephen Lutfak. It's actually based on a novel from 1907 called... Israel Rank, colon, The Autobiography of a Criminal by Roy Horneman. Okay. The novel was also the source for a 1949 British film called Kind Hearts and Coronets, with which it shares the idea of the musical, casting just one actor as an entire family, involving nine roles. 
And interestingly, the film's copyright holder tried to sue the creators of the musical because of that similarity. Right. Um, but after a very protracted legal battle and no doubt lots of money for the lawyers, the claim was eventually dismissed. Weirdly, though, a small production of the show, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, was performed in 2004 under the same name as the 1949 film, which was suing them for, for the similarities. Oh. I mean, was that a when big, did they change the name? That was, well, that was just a, 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 an offshoot production. Right, right. A shorter version done with the name of the film. Oh, sure. So uh, the way I read that is they were just giving a big middle finger to the owners <laughs> of the rights for the film, saying, well, we're going to do another version and we're going to actually call it Kind Hearts and Suck Cognets. Suck it, <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do about it? Uh, <laughs> anyway, I digress. A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder premiered in Hartford, Connecticut, running in October and November of 2012. Direction by Darko Tresniak. And that's a name you need to remember because it features a lot in the history of the story. The cast featured uh, Jefferson Mays, Ken Barnett, and Lisa O'Hare as uh, the three core actors for it. It was a co-production of the Hartford Stage and the Old Globe Theatre. So it then played at the Old Globe after the uh, productions in Hartford. Uh, Globe Theatre is in San Diego, California. And it uh, it was there through March of 2013, again directed by Tresniak, and the cast again featured those three, Mays, Barnett and O'Hare. It then opened on Broadway at the Walter Kerr Theatre in November of 2013, running right through till January of 2016. Director... Darko Tresniak and the original cast also featured Jefferson Mays and Lisa O'Hare who stayed with the production for its entire run Okay, uh, talk about tying yourself to a role eh? I guess they must have loved it uh, with 10 Tony nominations in 2014 and 4 wins including Best Musical, Best Book Best Direction and Best Costumes it also earned 7 Drama Desk Awards including Best Musical 4 Outer Critics Circle Awards including Best Musical and one Drama League Award for, guess what, Best Musical. Musical. There were a couple of US tours that took place from September of 2015 to March 2017, and then again from September that year, 2017, through to May of 2018. And then that October, just after those two tours had finished, the Australian production opened in Melbourne. Strangely, I can't find reference to the show being staged anywhere else in the world, and I was expecting to see that it was actually a West End production at some point. Yeah, well, that's why, yeah. Yeah, originally you thought it was. Yeah, I totally did. And I, when I went in to do my research, I you thought, You were like, well, no, man. When did the London production open? Oh. No London production. No. And I don't know why. Anyway... I'll give you the synopsis now. Somebody may know the answer to that and get in touch. Yeah. Uh, the synopsis is actually really very simple. On the night of his mother's funeral, middle-class Englishman Monty Navarro, actually I should say penniless Clark Monty Navarro, learns an incredible secret. He is the son of the daughter of the grandson of the nephew of the second Earl of Highhurst. <laughs> in other words, Monty is an aristocrat. If only he can find a way to prevent the eight people ahead of him in the ancestral lineage of taking up the title, uh, all members of the wealthy Dysworth banking family, he's got to stop them from inheriting the title first. And I think you can right. possibly see where the story is yeah, going to go from there. Yeah. So buoyed along by love for two different women, the stunning and self-centered Sibella and the pious and witty Phoebe, Monty takes on a ghoulish mission to make sure that he's the last surviving member of the nine in line, so to speak. I didn't mean that to rhyme, but it did. I liked it. 
It's one of mine. <laughs> as for the Dysquith family, one actor plays each ill-fated member, and the family lineup is as follows. There is Asquith Dysquith Jr., who's <laughs> described as a dandy. Lord Adlerbert Dysquith, 8th Earl of Highhurst. Oh, heck. I'm going to get messed up with all of these. Reverend Lord Ezekiel Dysquith, who's a clergyman. Lord Adlerbert Dysquith Sr., an elderly banker. Henry Dysquith, a country squire. Lady Hyacinth Dysquith, a benefactress. Major Lord Bartholomew Dysquith, a bodybuilder. Lady Salome Dysquith Pumphrey, an actress. And Chauncey Dysquith, a janitor. So one actor has the task of playing all of those roles. And in the, awesome. in the American productions, it was um, Jefferson Mays who did it all. Right. So the audience is treated to uh, basically Edwardian-style classic farce over-the-top representations, um, almost done a musical sort of style usually, stunning operatic singing, and a, a actually quite a very listenable score. Sure. Gentleman's Guide combines the very best of the past with a contemporary sensibility and humour and quite a bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we know what's going on here yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have the time, I, I do recommend actually seeing some of the stuff that is available on this production on YouTube. There's yeah. not a lot, but there are some out there. Um, a few Tony Awards performances. Yep. In particular, the clips showing Jefferson May's amazing ability to do the full range of the characters he had to deal with, typified in a great video of what they did uh, for the production of the 2014 Tony Awards. Fantastic. Yeah, right. Really, really good. And great fast costume changes. Complete characterization. Just change. really, really good. Okay. And saying all of that, this really is the gimmick of the show and to my mind it's the show's biggest selling point but at the same time for me it's also its biggest drawback okay because you know it's a one trick pony yeah and you can how many other cast members are there in it uh, good question, Grasshopper. There's a dozen, uh, a few. <laughs> I was going to say a dozen, but I don't think it is. I think it might be about six others. Oh, so it's actually a very small it's show. A fairly full, small show, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I can't help thinking that unless you have someone in that role who's not only got the performance skills to do such a huge role, but is also blessed with the helping of good old X Factor to just bring that extra bit of pizzazz to it, yeah. then you may fall flat because uh, you've really got to push that back out there you might just come up a little bit short of what's required to really wow an audience unless you do it well because there's nothing else particularly impressive about it it's just that's no. what's impressive about the show and if you get it wrong you, yeah. you get it wrong and i can imagine somebody like james corden thinking he could do it but nah what's well, funny you mentioned james corden because i the whole time you've been talking about this show i've been thinking that oh, sounds a bit like uh one, one man, man two, two governors. governors yeah very of that. Which he did a great job in. Yeah, he did. But, you know, he's kind of outstayed as well. You're not the first person to say that, actually. I've heard that quite <laughs> a bit from a bit people. Of a crap. Anyway, anyway <laughs> uh, I digress again. Anyway, that's how I feel about it, that if you can't quite get that X Factor out there and really push that boat, um, the show could fall a bit flat. So it really is a, one, of those, one of those cases where you've got to have a star. You've got to have somebody that can do it. Essentially, yeah, it, right. is, it, is, it is a star vehicle for the right performer. And the, the other characters really, they need to be good, but they back you know, them up. They could be anyone. Right, 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 right. Reviews, let's go there. Charles Isherwood of the New York Times praised the Connecticut production as, quote, ingenious, and also said it's among the most inspired and entertaining new musicals. And he also favorably reviewed the Broadway production later, writing that the show was, again, delightful, praising Jefferson Mays as dazzling, and adding that it was one of those shows that matched streams of memorable melody with fizzly, witty turns of phrase. I think he was trying desperately to be 
as good as Was the he himself, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alyssa Gardner, reviewing for USA Today, also praised Mays, saying that his comedic gifts are on glorious display. He's also a great singer, a great performer. Uh, she had positive words for the direction, calling it witty, and the drolly imaginative scenic and projection designs, and concluded that the musical was morbidly hilarious. According to Stage Grade, most reviewers praised the musical as fun and entertaining, although some were critical of the score, one describing it as forgettable pastiche. Mm. And this is where I'd have to say I tend to agree to some point with that. Agree to a degree, okay. if you like. Yeah. To me, it's not memorable not particularly memorable mm. um, you'll hear the songs today that they're, they're nice um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but for me there are no real standout songs that be, become like an earworm that you're still two days later can't get it out of your head kind of thing which a lot of a lot of really good shows have well and that's how you connect with the musical isn't it yeah. that's how i you know i watch tony performances i've seen most of them and a gentleman's guide just never st- stuck with me no and um although the songs functionally do great work in terms of supporting the narrative of the story and progressing the characters and everything they they just not you don't whistle them later or or wish, or see yourself singing them, it's you know? probably a bloody good night at the theater is, is probably what it, it, what it well, is that's exactly where i come to with this i think at the end because despite all that um it's not a bad soundtrack to listen to you can mm. listen to it and think yeah that was okay you probably just really need to see what's going on around it for yeah. it to have real relevance yeah to get the best experience out of it yeah um, this isn't one of those shows that you could happily listen to on a two-hour road trip i think unless you have seen some of the visuals that back it all up yeah so at that point i'm going to leave it you know it won awards it wowed some audiences but it really came down to the fact that that guy did that role through all of the US the entire season yeah, yeah. Interesting. I'll be. I'm interested to know why there was no London season. Maybe it'll be a mystery forever. We may never know. We may never know. If I'm ever to show my face in society again, I've got to find a new cause of my own and quickly. Come, come. Any ideas? Daisy Greville has the old. Lady Sitwell has the blind. And the fun for sailors' widows. That's the two of them combined. Night school for the nervous. Lady Beach and Margaret Guest. Crutches for the cripple. That was Elsie Barnes' bequest. Wayward women. Daisy Greville. Who's behind his figured men. Daisy Greville. And the deaf. Don't tell me. It's Greville yet again. Everyone's got something. Can't you see why I'm bereft? I want to do some good. But what the devil's left? What the devil's left? If I may, your ladyship, one hears about such terrible poverty in Egypt these days. Egypt? Hmm, land of the pharaohs and of Moses the Israelite. Home to the great pyramids and the Sphinx. That's it. We'll populate an orphanage in Cairo. With foundlings from the reeds along the Nile To watch a creature grow To swaddle it and know The joy of its pathetic little smile The news will travel soon enough to London London. Our selflessness will meet with great acclaim The sniping will be stilled And the empire will be filled With homes for bastard children in my name All aboard the Luxor Express to Cairo. And off she went. What 
I'd failed to tell her was that a violent uprising against the Empire was imminent, and no British citizen was considered safe. So you can imagine my surprise when Lady Hyacinth returned to London quite unharmed. Where will my largesse be truly appreciated? I need a place so low that hope itself has been abandoned. You've heard, of course, of the untouchables in India? India, land of Hindus and Muslims, of tamarind and saffron, exotic and unknowable. That's it. We'll find ourselves some lepers in the Punjab. The hopeless and the wretched and the cursed. Forgotten and unblessed. unblessed. I'll take them to my breast. Your breast. If Daisy Grebel doesn't get there first. When we arrive, they'll hobble out to greet us. Hello, Their toothless grins would melt a heart of stone. Oh. And every dilettante will envy me and want a colony of lepers of her own. Now, not a word to even your mothers to believe. Although, come to think of it, what is the point of helping others unless you let the whole world know? And off she went. I'd neglected to mention the malaria pandemic in the Punjab, a bit of insurance in case leprosy itself failed to prove contagious. So you can imagine my shock when Lady Hyacinth returned to London in record time, quite the picture of health. I don't suppose you'd be willing to penetrate the jungle of deepest, darkest Africa? Africa. From Zululand to Yoruba, home of proud warriors that make it torsos rippling in the firelight. We civilize a village in the jungle. The jungle! It can't take long to learn their mother tongue. The words they have but six, and five of them are clicks. And all of them are different words for dung. Can't you see their frightful painted faces? faces. They'll teach us how to spin from fine to fine. It's Daisy Grebel's loss. She'll never come across a tribe of backward natives worse than mine. The hot and toxic pigmen may appall us, but even they are part of God's design. We've bid you all goodbye. London try to find a tribe of natives worse than mine. Charity toward others is As always, get in touch if you want to add something to the list. Email backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or, yeah, you, know, do all that. you know. And consider this your last reminder for today. Please get in touch with Creative Waikato if you or your arts project could use their assistance. And also, don't forget to catch us backstage wherever you find your podcasts. We're available on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and more. Head over to Instagram and find Backstage Podcast NZ where I will be sharing today's episode plus musical of the week on our story. I once again have been Mel, he's been Mike, and you've been Backstage. Stay classy, dead and nerds. And I'm going to go out today with a song that I think is probably one of the best out of the show. Why are all the dice quits dying? It's from A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. See you. <laughs>
Or farmer comes touching my banisters, banging my armor. They finger every feather you, they poke your cornerstone. Who'd want to be reminded of what they'll never own? Though my politics are purely democratical, I find the species frankly problematical. I don't understand the poor. I don't understand the poor. The lives they lead of want and need. I should think it would be a bore. It seems to be nothing but stubbornness. Now oh, what's all the suffering for? To be so debased is in terrible taste. I don't understand the poor. To be so debased is in terrible taste. I don't understand the poor. So arise the cat, for he does not understand the 
I don't understand the poor and they're constantly turning out more. Every festering slum in Christendom is disgorging its young by the score. I suppose there are some with ambition, say the pickpocket beggar or whore. From what I can tell, they do quite well. They're rising above in its work they love, but I don't understand the poor. They're rising above in its work they love, but I don't understand the poor. Where's the dignity? Where's the dignity? Where's the pride? Where's the pride? The ignominity. Putting the lame and the halt aside, why accept charity? I am perplexed by the attitude. I contend we extend them too much latitude. My tenants have no excuse. At Christmas I give them a goose. Where's the integrity? Where's the gratitude? I don't understand the poor. How I long for days of yore. When nearly a vassal stepped in the castle, they knew not to darken your door. Now they barge in every Tuesday with a sickening, thickening roar. Like batter and trample, set an example, we teach them to read. But do they succeed when they're hungry and frail? We feed them in jail. We send them off to war. I don't understand, I'm not being grand. I don't understand the poor. I don't understand, I'm not being grand. I don't understand the there's one I admit I adore. He's missing a leg, but a very good egg. A gentleman through to the core. Well, he may be a bit of a drinker. He can often be found on the floor. Through all of his pains, he never complains. He's bright and astute. A shame that he's mute. According to mother, he may be my brother. A fact we all choose to ignore, but I don't understand. I'm sensitive and I don't understand the poor. I don't understand. I'm sensitive and I don't understand. There are pops in the land. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand the poor. Don't understand. Really, I don't. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.